The following is a podcast from St. George's Episcopal Church in Arlington, Virginia. We invite you to support the ministries of St. George's Church through a one-time or reoccurring donation. To give, visit our webpage, www.stgeorgeschurch.org. The word saint is spelled in full. St. George's is a vibrant and inclusive community that is committed to loving God, serving others, and changing the world. Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, About that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that you may teach us your ways, that we may walk in your paths. In the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Inspirer. Amen. Peace be within your walls and quietness within your towers. While the beginning of the epical book of Isaiah is a prophecy regarding the ways in which Mount Zion will be established as the highest of the mountains, our psalm is an ancient devotional liturgy for lifting up that mountain in prayer, instructing us in how we might pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Here, the prayers offered include the use of a poetic parallel phrase. It's a common occurrence in biblical poetry, and in this case, the peace and prosperity being visualized are conveyed in terms of two key pieces of architecture in the built environment of the earliest city-states of the biblical world. An outer wall often surrounded the houses where the majority of the people lived. And the larger powers also had an inner sanctum of sorts, a highly fortified keep, a palace or tower, sometimes multiple in the strongest cities. This was occupied by the rulers of the court. The citadel was usually built to oversee the defenses and also to serve as a last bastion for the loyalists should the outer wall be overrun a place to retreat to. 
Masada, the desert fortress built on top of a plateau in Israel, actually had two citadels in addition to its exterior wall. One taller tower was built by Herod to be the royal residences, and one smaller tower near the gate, which also guarded the water cistern. I wonder if Christ ever thought about Herod's Masada as he was praying his way through Psalm 122, whether as a child or as an adult. After all, as we are in the first Sunday of Advent, this is the time when we begin our intentional preparations for the Christ child. What does his formation look like over the years that he grew up? This is the beginning of our liturgical year. We can say Happy New Year to one another. Returning to our prayer, though, our prayer for Jerusalem, for quietness within your towers, could have been a prayer for clarity and calm effectiveness in the halls of power in Israel. The rendering of quietness in the New Revised Standard Version is based on the Hebrew word shalah, related to shalom. Among other meanings, shalah suggests being at rest, being quiet, prospering, or being at ease. In terms of the other half of the parallel double phrase, peace be within your walls, I've preached before on how shalom, the Hebrew word usually rendered with our English word peace, means more than just an absence of vitriol. Shalom incorporates ideas of wholeness, completeness, abundance, and vitality. This is what we pray for one another in person when we pass the peace in worship, saying, peace be with you. We are pursuing abundant relationships with one another. We want a balanced wholeness in the lives of others. We are seeking the completeness of the other person. And this isn't the only place in our liturgy where we pray for peace. Five out of the six suggested forms for the prayers of the people in our Book of Common Prayer specifically pray for peace. Paul's, letter begin, Paul's letters begin with a greeting, grace, and peace. I have a strong memory also of at least one of the priests in the church where I grew up, concluding the service with a particular blessing written out as an option at the end of the right one service, drawing on the fourth chapter of Philippians. It reads, in part, The peace of God which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The idea that the shalom of God is beyond all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds suggests to me that God's peace is more than the deepest meditative inner mindfulness we can imagine on our own. It suggests to me that God's shalom can also involve an awakened presence with others. I say this as someone who struggles with stress, who struggles with not having the kind of deep peace in my heart and soul that I would like. But the kind of shalom I hear God describing is still connected to what it means to stay woke. In spiritual terms, keeping watch as articulated in both our epistle and in our gospel, and while Sasha Baron Cohen's recent critique has certainly widened plenty of eyes in our public life. There are also plenty of other prophetic stances that are perhaps less celebrated, but no less powerful in their ability to wake us up to the truth. 
just as we hope that those who keep watch over the integrity of our elections aren't going to fall asleep on the job, so too we expect that Christians today will also stay awake. The earliest Christians certainly understood the importance of staying awakened to the reality of Christ's presence and power in all people, regardless of race, gender, age, socioeconomic situation, or formal educational credentials, whether lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, or heterosexual. Building on the tradition of those earliest Christians in our broken world today is something we couldn't begin to do without God's help, especially amid the rapid changes we've seen in our culture and in our technology. Through it all, Scripture has promised that Christ has gone ahead of us, ahead of us to Galilee, that place on the margins, whether it means we'll meet Christ on the margins of our comfort zones, on the margins of our understanding, on the margins of our society. In our gospel today, we're challenged to stretch beyond just the metaphor of the teacher who has gone ahead of us. Today, we are also challenged with the idea that perhaps Christ has also come to us and comes to us like a thief in the night. In my own life, I can tell you that Christ has already stolen into my life, taken away my pride and my desire for power over others. And while I still repent of my lust for mammon, my hesitancy at times in I-thou relationships of equality, I've seen with greater and greater clarity over the years how Christ has been present in gracious ways throughout my life, providing me with gifts I could never have comprehended or deserved or come up with on my own. One gift showed up just this past week. We were on a walk in Boston Public Gardens right next to the common, and my father took the extended family on a detour to visit a perhaps lesser-known monument, a monument to the discovery of the first anesthesia, ether. There was some controversy over who officially should get credited for this discovery. As the saying goes, success has many fathers. Both a chemist and a dentist claimed that they made the key contribution to the breakthrough, but it is undisputed that the first public demonstration happened in Massachusetts General Hospital in 1846. The person dedicating the monument actually cited the dispute, joking that the monument could be to ether or to either. <laughs> I credit a certain savvy for the fact that neither person is cited in the monument. It just has a statue of the Good Samaritan at the top, and it seems that the good people of the 19th century were able to translate the other into the cultural terms of their own day. On the statue, the Good Samaritan is clad in Moorish attire. In addition to two inscriptions describing the reason for the monument, there are two passages from the King James, pointing the overarching purpose of our good work as Christians by God's grace and inspiration that we might be a part of establishing God's reign here on earth. Isaiah 28 tells of how there, this also comes forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful and excellent in working. And the second quote is from Revelation 21, one frequently used in our funeral liturgies to talk about the time when God's fullness will be all in all. Neither shall there be any more pain. Neither shall there be any more pain. 
Revelation describes the results of God's redeeming power coming to earth. I felt blessed by the reminder that no matter how broken and messed up our world might be, God's power is already on the way. God's shalom is already being enacted. The kingdom is coming. And we are called to be a part of God's wonderful and excellent work to bring God's shalom in our nation as well as in Jerusalem. That we might receive and embody Christ's healing power here in the Eucharist and wherever we find ourselves as we pray. Peace be within your walls and quietness within your towers. Amen.